Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, CEO of Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and executive chairman of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. Well, today's episode is the first in a series where we'll be exploring the future of AI and the future of work from the perspective of those investing in emerging enterprise technologies. Ashu Garg is a general partner at Foundation Capital, one of the most iconic firms in Silicon Valley. Ashu was first an entrepreneur before becoming an investor and discovering amazing companies like, uh, check out this list, uh, TubeMogul, Cohesity, Eightfold, Databricks, uh, and many others, it's quite a list. Uh, Ashu is one of the most successful investors in AI and enterprise technology. And he really is as qualified as anyone to help us understand what's up ahead. Ashu hosts a very popular uh, podcast, B2B as CEO, one of my favorites, where he's interviewed guests like Eric Yuan from Zoom, Jennifer Tejada from PagerDuty, and George Kurtz from CrowdStrike. I know that I'm smarter from having uh, listened to Ashu's advice, and I think you will be too after today's conversation. Without further ado, welcome. Ashu, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show today. You know, I'm a, uh, I've had a bit of a random or eclectic background, depending on, you know, which is your preferred word. I'm an engineer by training, started my career at Unilever, did a stint at McKinsey, left to do a startup in the late 90s in the internet search space in Asia, trying to build out the first search engine in, in, in India and then more broadly in Asia, failed in the 2000 recession and, and learned a very hard lesson as an entrepreneur, it's worse to be too early than to be too late. Uh, I then moved to the U.S., uh, short-stinted McKinsey in the U.S. In, in Silicon Valley, then ran strategy, marketing, and pre-sales functions at Cadence Design Systems, went on to Microsoft to run field marketing for all of the software businesses of Microsoft globally, then ran the ad business of Microsoft, uh, left to do another startup. And ended up meeting one of the foundation partners in a parking lot, uh, and the rest is history. You had such an eclectic background, like you said. What's your proudest accomplishment? You know, professionally, we always remember the times, or at least I always remember the times when, in the moment, it seemed crazy, and in hindsight, it seemed obvious. And for me personally, when I think about my foundation experience. Uh, I was, one of my first investments was a company called TubeMogul. I invested in it when they had a couple of hundred thousand dollars in revenues. And really the insight was that online video would be big. And with it, online video advertising would be big. Seems obvious today, but in 2010, it was still a new idea. Uh, the company went public in, 2006, in 2015. Uh, you know, when we started the IPO process, the market was great. And four weeks later, the market was in horrible shit. And so during the roadshow, every single day, the underwriters would keep lowering the price. Uh, and at some point it became clear that it would be impossible for the company to go public. But Brett Wilson, the then CEO, didn't know how to take no for an answer. Uh, I actually offered him a private round term sheet to lead a large private financing from our early stage fund, which we don't usually do late stage investing as an alternative to the IPO. 
but he was determined to sort of go ahead. And so we ended up effectively underwriting the IPO. We wrote a $25 million check from a Series A fund into the IPO. Uh, in hindsight, it was great. We ended up making a lot of money on that round. But it was definitely both the scariest moment of my life in the moment, and in hindsight, the most professionally satisfying. You know, it allowed Brett to realize his dream of taking the company, and it ended up also being profitable. So win-win on all sides. So maybe unlike Two Mobile, describe a situation where you got all excited about a deal, pitched it to your partners, and they rejected it. And uh, had had you uh, had you crawl back from that? You know, it's a long list. Uh, it happens to all of us as investors, especially early in our careers. Uh, you know, I, I found WhatsApp very early on and tried to convince my partners that messaging would be a thing. And back in 09, that wasn't obvious that messaging would be a thing. Uh, but another one, you know, more recently was Eightfold. Uh, I had worked with the, the founder of Eightfold is also Ashu Gart, so it makes for a fun team and fun board meetings. But Ashu and I had tried to start a company together before I joined Foundation, so I knew him really well. I helped him spend. I spent a year with him thinking through what was the single largest market there you could apply cutting edge NLP into, and we had identified matching people to opportunity at that market. Uh, I brought the company in. I thought it would be a no brainer. For us to lead the round, he was a guy I'd known for a decade, serial entrepreneur, background in Google, PhD from Urbana-Champagne, you know, that blue chip a technical resume as it gets, and somehow it just didn't come together, you know, yeah, the presentation didn't go as I thought it would, and the firm, my partners looked at me and said, what are you thinking here? This makes no sense. Uh, and so we ended up not leading the Series A. And I, I was, I was very upset. I, you know, I, I definitely had more than a few drinks that night and it took a few weeks, but I recovered from it. And I said, look, I'm going to track this company very closely. I'm going to act like a board member, even though I'm not an investor as a firm. And I introduced, you know, Eightfold to its earliest customers. I probably introduced them to 40, 50 different possible customers. I would meet Ashu every Sunday, because that was the only time he had a slot for me. I would go to his office. He worked every Sunday. I'd go spend Sunday mornings with him for close to six months. And at the end of that process, I convinced him that he should give Foundation a second chance, because he was also feeling a little burnt. And I convinced my partners by continuously showing them updates on the product and the customer traction, so that nine months in post the Series A, we essentially gave him a term sheet for the Series B with zero revenues. So it was, you know, the most expensive Series B I've ever done for a zero revenue company, uh, but the rest is history. For any entrepreneurs listening who think that VCs don't hustle like we do, replay the tape. <laughs> Let's listen to that one. That's a, that's a great story. You know, and I, I tell my colleagues who are joining Venture, a VC is just a fancy term for a sales rep with a, with a nice business card. That is the best ones. Not all of them, but the best ones. Like the best sales reps, I suppose. Your, your namesake at Eightfold is a good example, but give me another example of an entrepreneur you met whose just brilliance was obvious and you, you, know, you just fell in love with them as an entrepreneur, maybe even independent of the business and kind of tell us how that played out. 
So let me use another example. You know, one of my other portfolio companies is a company called Turing, which is a marketplace for elite engineering talent. It brings talent from around the world and matches them mostly to US, to US based, but mostly even to various startups. And the company was founded by Jonathan Siddharth and, and Vijay Krishnan, VK. And I met Jonathan and VK in an event a few years ago. And this guy, Jonathan, and, and Jonathan was VK's plus one in that event. That was the first odd thing, you know. I, I, the two of them would always hang out together in all social events. And, you know, I was trying to figure out the, what, was, what was the catch here. But Jonathan started off, he would take copious notes to every conversation. When I would talk to him three months later, he would remind me of something I had said three months ago. And that really caught my attention. This attention to detail, this desire to find pattern recognition over time. And so I started spending a lot more time with Jonathan and VK, and we came up with this idea of building a marketplace for engineering talent. Uh, some of the insights came from their experience as founders. Some of it came from my experience having worked in IT services back in the 90s. But when we pitched that idea to my partners at Foundation and to others in venture, you know, frankly, the response was lukewarm would be polite. It was like WTF, like what's, what's the big deal here? And for us, the big deal was there was this multi-hundred billion dollar opportunity for IT services to be disrupted, an opportunity that we saw as dramatically larger than Uber's opportunity. And the technology that it was enabling this was the opportunity to apply NLP technology to mining data and to mining code to build developer profiles. So, you know, I seeded the company. Uh, the company got off to a pretty fast start. And, but even as they talked to other VCs, it took a while. No one saw the beauty of the company. It was interesting. A lot of individuals and angel investors immediately got it, but no institutional VC got it. But then eventually, you know, traction solves all problems. And the company is one of the fastest companies in our portfolio to go from zero to 10 million in revenues. And they're now well beyond that. And so they raised a very successful Series B uh, late last year. NLP is such a hard technology to get right because our expectations are so unrealistically high because of what we get from Google. Uh, you just described two examples of very successful companies that have applied NLP to you know, search-related problems. What did they get right that so many other companies miss? So I think it's a combination of three things. It First, you have to find a market opportunity that is large enough where there is room for error. You know, if you go back in time, the killer app for machine learning, not just NLP, but machine learning more broadly was ads. Why? Because most ads are targeted badly. So even marginal improvements in performance make a big deal, difference. The same is true in matching people to opportunity, which is what Eightfold does, or in sort of developing profiles of developers, engineers, based on their code, which is what Turing does. You know, the baseline is very poor. So, you know, anything you do sort of makes a difference. That's one. So you've got to find enough room for error or enough sort of, in a technical sense, talent. I don't have a good word for it, uh, but that's one. The second thing you've got to do 
is, look, it's a hard technology and you have to start with a team that's truly special. A lot of people throw the buzzword NLP around. You'll find a lot of data scientists and engineers saying, I can, I can do this. But, you know, I'll pick one example, Varun Petrolia, the co-founder of Eightfold, he built, you know, Facebook's uh, newsfeed. So he built the machine learning there. He built YouTube search before that. Ashu, his co-founder and CEO, built commerce search at, at Google. So you've got to start with a certain level of experience so you understand what's possible and what's not possible. And I think the third thing is how you package and productize the solution. Because it, despite, you know, no matter how cutting edge your technology, no matter how large the opportunity, there are constraints. And your product has to acknowledge those constraints and work around them. You can't expose raw technology to customers. And I think both companies, when I look back, really got productization right. Whether it's NLP or other, other emerging technologies, what's one thing that you think will be commonplace at work in 10 years that today might seem absurd or like science fiction? You know, it's very rare that science, science fiction becomes commonplace in work in 10 years. So uh, I would pick something that isn't really science fiction today, but I think self-driving cars. I think self-driving cars will change the future of work. Uh, you know, we've been talking about it for the last decade. So I wouldn't say it's science fiction, but it still is not real. It doesn't feel real. And, and I think it will be real in 10 years and it will change the way we think about work completely. Give me a year. When do you think we'll see self-driving cars, let's say on the road in, you know, in, in uh, suburbia? I think, 2031, I think in 2031, we'll see self-driving cars. I'm pretty sure in 2031, I will get into my car in San Francisco, here in, in, in Atherton, and I will open the newspaper or, you know, do my email and get off the car in, in an office in the city. I'm of the mindset that the thing that's holding back adoption of self-driving cars is less the technology and more our ability to regulate them. Who's responsible if a self-driving car kills a pedestrian and who, who, it, who is it that gets to write the algorithms that decides what the car should do if faced with the alternative of, let's say, you know, hitting a school bus full of children or you know, an, 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 uh, an elderly person crossing the street? So, so Dan, you raised a very important issue. I think in all of machine learning, not just self-driving cars, uh, productization of machine learning and AI has an interplay with what's possible with the technology and what the regulations are comfortable with. And, and regulations are, you know, effectively, what is society comfortable with? And society, unfortunately, is not one, one homogenous body. And so, you know, I, I think the answers to these questions will emerge over time. It's, it's unclear today what the right answers are. I mean, I can, I can have an opinion and I do have an opinion, but frankly, my opinion is irrelevant in this debate. Uh, I think the regulators will figure this out, but I think the two things will go hand in hand. I don't think the technology is there. I don't think the regulations are there. I think the things will converge. Uh, and a decade from now, I think that will happen. One of the other issues that I think is constraining a lot of AI is the issue of who owns your data and 
how do we mitigate the impact of biased data influencing AI models? Um, any thoughts either from your portfolio companies or personal experience about how we're gonna navigate that one? It is at the crux of all machine learning AI issues, again, just like regulation in both the companies I talked about, but in a dozen other companies that I'm working with, it's really hard to, to, to define who owns the data. You know, take, take, uh, take your resume. If your resume is in, you know, is, is available on LinkedIn, does LinkedIn own the data or do you? If you work at Workday or, you know, pick your favorite company, does Workday own that data or do you? If the same data is available in five different systems now because a lot of this data is available in multiple places and or is pieced together from multiple places. How do you decide on data lineage and data ownership? And so, so, so I don't think the answers are clear. I think what is important is for every company to establish a policy and be transparent about it. I think transparency in the policies is critical and transparency from day one. The second thing that I, is critical is to deliver value to every participant in the ecosystem and everyone who's contributing data. So for you and me as individuals, I don't think we necessarily think our resume is deeply confidential if we're getting some value as part of that transaction. But if you're using the data in a way that I'm not comfortable with, which you know some of the large tech platforms are doing, then I think it becomes problematic. So, they think about transparency and a fair trade of value as more important than defining ownership, which, you know, frankly, I think is, is a somewhat intractable problem. I come to your question around bias. I think that is a huge issue in, and I've been very fortunate that in some of the companies that I work with, Eightfold, for example, the, the founders really thought about that problem first. You know, at, right at the start, they said, look, how do we ensure that in fact, how do we use machine learning in a positive way to reduce bias? So the company actually has, you know, a whole bunch of settings in its product uh, that help people reduce bias. So for example, they block out all signals of gender in a resume, if you want to, you can, you know, it's, you can switch on that feature. Uh, we've seen many examples, not just of gender bias, but even cultural biases. Uh, we have a client in India where when they switched on that feature, they found that the mix of geographic origins of candidates changed because people had inherent biases of where people grew up. So all kinds of biases can be removed with AI, but at the same time, biases can be introduced by AI. And, and, and there's a lot of work that has to be done to actually watch how these models perform. I actually invested last year in a company called Arise.ai that is the data dog for machine learning models. They monitor machine learning models in production for performance issues, for uh, issues around data discrepancies and around explainability as well. And so I do think that is an emerging category, but I don't think the answer is only using a tool. Every AI company has an obligation to sort of address proactively the issue of bias. I firmly believe that we're soon approaching a point where every AI vendor and essentially every AI model will get kind of a, uh, you know, a good housekeeping score or, uh, you know, kind of like you, you, you know, you grade the hygiene of a restaurant, you know, and I think the three kind of categories on every scorecard for an AI model is, 
is it explainable? You know, can, can is it reproducible? You know, do you understand what it's doing? Um, I think it needs to be transparent. I think when a decision is made based on your data, it needs to be disclosed. That's how the decision was made. And I think it needs to be configurable. I think to the extent that there is bias in the data or to the extent um, the results are not reproducible, I think it's incumbent on the vendor to provide the right kind of levers and gauges to devolve control over the model's efficacy down to whoever's facilitating the automated decisions. I agree. No, I think that's a great framework. And I think the framework itself will evolve. Uh, but what's encouraging to see is we're starting to see companies take ownership of the issue. I definitely feel in my startup portfolio, uh, this is a boardroom topic. You know, we've, we've had multiple companies uh, in our portfolio have this discussion proactively. They're engaging with customers proactively, understand their expectations around this and make sure they're responding to those. I, I definitely think, you know, we'll be talking about this conversation, this, this very topic, bias in models a decade from now. Tell us about the story of Arise. How'd you find them? I think it's brilliant and I'm not familiar with them, but, but I, wanna give, I wanna give them some airtime on this show. It's, it's a great concept. Arise is one of those companies that, that you know, came out of sort of the, the convergence of multiple things, uh, multiple macro trends in some ways. So one is I had been spending a fair bit of time uh, thinking about the problem of model observability. I had companies like Eightfold and Turing that were building in-house tools. And whenever I see people building in-house tools, to me, that's an opportunity. This tool should be built by a third-party company. And so I saw that starting to happen sometime around the summer of 2019. There were a couple of other companies in the space that were early to this market. I met with all of them. And they all came across as academic. They had the right problem, but their approach to solving it was academic. And then, you know, I, you know, but so I identified an opportunity and I started to talk to people in my network. And it turned out that Jason Lopatecki, who is the founder and CEO of Arise, and is also one of the founders of TubeMobile, had been dealing with this issue at TubeMobile for years. And he had started to build a whole bunch of tools uh, at TubeMobile, especially post their acquisition by Adobe, where this issue had become much, you know, much more prominent. They were trying to solve the problem in-house. He had completed sort of his, his vesting period at, at Adobe and was looking to do something next. And it just was a natural thing, you know, a repeat entrepreneur who's faced this problem firsthand. Uh, he said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to start a company and, you know, we'd worked together once. And so, uh, you know, we had a deal done in a matter of an hour. Uh, and then it was a question of helping him build a team. Uh, it turned out that there was someone who had been a young intern at TubeMobile in the early days, Aparna Dhinakaran. And Aparna then had gone on from TubeMobile to work at Uber in the machine learning team. Had identified the same problem and had started to work on a PhD on this and was also doing a startup in the same space. And we found a way to bring Aparna and Jason together and coming out of that was Arise. And then very quickly, a lot of the early and the best engineers at TubeMobile joined the team. And so we went from an idea that was bouncing around in my head, Jason's head and Aparna's head to a company. And, and what makes this one particularly special is I think it's a practitioner's view to the problem. They, you know, everyone on the team has dealt with this problem in their operating lives. And 
the way the product is set up and configured is how do you help the practitioner deal with the issue today? As again, some theoretical concept of explainability. I'm a firm believer that it's always a great time to start a company as long as you've got grit and hustle and stamina and passion for what you're doing. Uh, maybe that's a you know, little bit Pollyanna-ish, but I'm going to stand by that. What would you uh, say to entrepreneurs who are listening to this about whether or not now is a good time to start a company? You know, I agree with you, Dan. It's always a good time. I think some of the best companies were built uh, or were started in 2009. If you go back one, one more generation, some of the best companies started in 2001. So I think irrespective of the external environment, it's a great time. That said, what makes the current point in time unique is I do think the multi-trillion dollar enterprise technology market is going through a complete disruption. And in addition with machine learning, the opportunity for automation is actually much larger than the $4 trillion of enterprise technology. The ability to automate the vast majority of mundane tasks that human beings do, so human beings can focus on higher higher level decision-making and cognitive tasks, I think, you know, is an opportunity to change the world. And I, you know, I look around and I say, you know, I, there's a phrase one of my partners used yesterday that's really stayed with me. If you can find a technical founder who can sell, and if they have, you know, the attributes you talked about, real grit, persistence, the willingness to stay the course, the pigheadedness not to take no for an answer, you combine those things and, you know, magic happens. Magic happens. Exactly the words that were going through my mind. Uh, so we, we just have another minute or two, but, uh, uh, and thank you for letting us go off script so early in the, <laughs> in the discussion, that was fun. Uh, but one last question I got to get in and that's uh, your advice for a younger version of Ashu. You know, I would say take more risk. That would be my number one piece of advice. I think we always, early in our careers, we underestimate the value of taking more risk. Eventually, risk and return are correlated. I mean, we all know that theoretically. Uh, but if I, I wish I had taken a lot more risk 25 years ago. I wish I had networked more with people. I'd gone out of my comfort zone to meet people that weren't a part of my natural network. And lastly, I would say I would bet on the power of compounding. Lots of people talk about compounding. You, you know, there's lots of Twitter threads about it, but I really believe we underestimate the value of compounding in all, in all dimensions, whether it's your 401k or it's knowledge or relationships. Look for things that compound and do it early in your career. Well, now you're in the business of risk-taking, so you're making up for lost time, huh? I absolutely am. And, you know, I'm fortunate we live in a society in a world that hopefully I can be doing this for the next 25 years. Well, Ashu, we're about out of time. Uh, feels like we're just getting started. And maybe if you wouldn't mind, we'll have you back and, and we can uh, test some of these uh, theories we've been discussing. Would that be all right? Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun and I'd love to be back. Likewise. I enjoyed this so much. Uh, Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work. Signing off for now. Join us next week for another fascinating discussion with a fascinating guest.